Did you have a mentor growing up? Someone who took your hand and showed you a path? Someone who believed in you when, well, you didn't believe in yourself? Maybe this person found you in a classroom, on a ball field, your first job. No, your first real job. What value did that person bring to your life? Was it priceless? I'm Amanda DeJong, and you're listening to Now at Ohio State. We talk with researchers, innovators, and bold thinkers who look at our world, see what the real challenges are, and create the solutions that people need now. History brims with examples of astounding mentors and the outstanding results of those relationships. Socrates mentored Plato, who mentored Aristotle, who mentored Alexander the Great, Buffett and Gates, Angelo and Oprah, Woody and Archie. Here at Ohio State, mentorship's pay-forward guidance is part of the community fabric. From athletes to artists to scientists and entrepreneurs, it's who we are. Today, our Ross Bischoff introduces us to Carmen Swain, As she works on breakthroughs in health research, Carmen mentors the next generation of exercise scientists. That includes undergrad Anthony Dumovich. With Carmen guiding him the last year, Anthony oversaw a research study that is literally changing the lives of adults with health challenges that make them vulnerable, even ignored. Carmen, what's the single greatest predictor of winning the Nobel Prize? A lot of people think in science that maybe the number of publications you have, number of citations you have, how many awards you might have won, where you received your PhD, but the number one predictor is who your mentor was. If your mentor was a Nobel laureate, then you are three times more likely to also win the Nobel Prize. And you know how I knew that? I sent you the article. You sent me an article. When she told me that and sent me that article, I was like, oh, it was really mind-blowing to me, especially with the relationship you have with Carmen. Because of this mentoring relationship you have with her, you were able to basically help her oversee a study. And for an undergrad to do that, that's pretty impressive. Can you just tell us what the study was? Peggy Mills, the gym owner, has a visual system she came up with that helps people with intellectual disabilities. I kind of help them work out on their own and get a sense of independence and exercise and being able to be more comfortable and familiar in like a gym setting, get them into more physical activity and like lifelong physical activity. We had measures testing their upper body strength, lower body strength, stuff like that you would expect to see with any exercise study. But more importantly, kind of what we wanted to prove was that that use of that visual system helped them be more comfortable and get more familiar with an exercise program and with gym equipment. So we tested how often Peggy would need to prompt them to go through exercises and how much help they needed. And we kind of saw a decline over time of how much help they needed going through uh, their exercise routine. We all know that we're all encouraged to exercise and we see a gym on every corner. But for millions of Americans, those gyms are inaccessible. And so the whole point of the study was to help make exercise programming more equitable, more accessible to this specific population. The population of people that suffer from intellectual disability, one of the problems that we see when um, this population tries to access a gym or exercise programming is that they need one-on-one 
instruction and being led through programming every single time. And usually this responsibility falls upon the caretaker. By inaccessibility, what I mean is that there is a gym, it is full of equipment, and you or I or anyone else could walk in there and turn on the treadmill and do a workout, go over to the weight stack and lift some weights. But to the population that has intellectual disabilities, that's not the case. They don't know how to carry out exercise programming on their own. And that's the beauty of this visual system is that it's very simplistic. Um, and through the process of going through eight weeks of programming, what we've found is that the participant can then carry out exercise programming on their own. And this is something that you and I might not think of as being so remarkable, but for this person, this is life-changing. This population hasn't had a lot of research done on it, is that correct? Especially with regard to exercise and physical activity. That's correct. In regards to health-related research, uh, this population is often overlooked and not included in many health-related research practices. So, yeah, we're excited to do this study to be able to shed some light um, on some best practices. And so, Anthony, what, what did the results show? All three areas of physical fitness, um, the exercise, like independence, the prompting, and um, self-efficacy, which is kind of your own belief in yourself that you have the ability to complete a task. We kind of measured that as another outcome. And everything improved for the most part. It was really powering kind of to see that even in this population, an exercise program can be official and you can, you can make it work. The thing that I... I think it's really eye-opening is until they're 22, a lot of people with intellectual disabilities, they're kind of taken care of at school, right? They have exercise programs, they have you know school, gym, that kind of thing, and even the Special Olympics. Once they hit 22, though, it's on the parents and the caregivers. And a lot of there's a lot of numbers from the CDC and stuff that say like obesity, diabetes, heart-related issues, this group of adults has a lot of issues, right? And so this is kind of what Peggy's work gets at and kind of what the study was getting at to kind of maybe intervene in that, right? We know that chronic disease is a problem for Americans as a whole, but the National Activity Plan puts a special target on this population because the incidence of obesity and chronic disease is even higher in this population. So they end up going home and becoming very physically inactive. And we find that programming just doesn't exist. And then the gyms themselves are inaccessible and it relies upon the parents or the caregiver to continuously, in order to get um, these individuals to exercise, to take them to the gym. And, you know, that's fine. A, a lot of times parents are really motivated to do that, but the problem becomes as the parent ages, it becomes like, a really challenge and a burden on the parent. So being able to teach and instruct individual to be able to carry out independent exercise training on their own is a really big goal to help promote physical activity programming independently. I mean, you had some nonverbal people, people with Down syndrome. What'd you learn? Flexibility is what I, I think probably took the most of is because every day, like everyone, you know, going into it, I knew would have, you know, some sort of mild to moderate intellectual disability. 
but that doesn't really tell you anything. That doesn't tell you any of the story. And like you said, they could be nonverbal, verbal. You know, if they have cerebral palsy, it was pretty common. And it started on day one with the evaluation. Anthony would take the participants through the evaluation. And I don't know how many participants would like practically run to their parent to tell them how much weight they lifted, or they would hug their parent because they were so excited, or they would hug one of us. It's the normal thing to be able to work out. And everybody feels good when you work out. And it was just awesome for me to see that um, in this population, to see how much joy that it brought them. This study doesn't happen unless you two have a really great relationship. I mean, a mentor-mentee relationship. And that's why I brought um, the Nobel Prize stat up earlier, because I think it was in that paper, and Carmen, you probably said this, that it's it's not just learning things, but it's really kind of working hand-in-hand with somebody, seeing how they think, those kind of things. And that really, this study doesn't happen without that. I don't know what I would be doing right now if it wasn't for her doing that. Her taking me under and, you know, trusting in me and believing that I could get this done has done unbelievable things for my career side of myself because I, you know, like she said, I learned through experience and mistakes and I got to take on my own project and figure out what exactly it means even to do a to do a study because in the other labs, you know, I didn't really see a lot of the background stuff. I would just, you know, do the things I was asked and that would really be it. And but now you see everything that goes on and everything that goes into it and you work at every problem and there's a lot of them. So you get to see a lot of stuff. And that has been so valuable for me because now I understand, you know, going into having this research background, going into, you know, clinical work, I can understand research and what it really means, what it means to do a project and all the things they did. And I couldn't have gained that experience, you know, unless I entered into a a grad program you know, at Ohio State that's focused on research that I wouldn't have gotten any other way, especially not undergrad. There's no other way I could have gotten that experience. So Carmen, what are some characteristics you would look for in someone you'd mentor? If you can see yourself in that person, you can identify with that individual on some particular characteristics. That's the ideal situation because then you have a greater understanding. You can say, well, what would I? What did I need five years ago? What could I tell myself? What would best help me on my path and lead me towards my goals? And it also allows you to have empathy and understanding to that individual. So I think seeing yourself or at least parts of yourself in your mentee is kind of a, a valuable thing. But Carmen, how do you go about mentoring someone? Because you've mentored a lot of students over the years. An undergraduate who's going to be involved in a research project like Anthony has, where it's not just dabbling in a faculty mentor's research project, he's was in it from the start. There's a big learning curve, but the job of a mentor is to try to help dampen that, that learning curve to make it, it's not necessarily easier, I don't think Anthony would say this is an easy process, but to kind of open the door and to provide light, uh, show the path, and just kind of guide, right? Like this this is what we have to do, this is step one. And then after we get that done, we're gonna do step two. It's also, being a mentor, it's really important to step back and also let 
the student make decisions and make mistakes. Um, that's in life how we learn by making our mistakes. It's the best way to learn. And so it's like not doing everything for Anthony, but letting him try it, make mistakes, and kind of more being a support crew. I don't know if Anthony wants me to say this or not, but Anthony has a tattoo that says, do more. I know even early on in the study, I, I kind of tried to talk Anthony out of doing the study more than once. I wasn't sure. I didn't know if he really understood what it meant to take on a research project. And I did not. <laughs> I, did not. I, I tried to impress upon him that, are, are you sure you want to do this? And um, I tried to talk him out of it, I think three times. He always came back like that he wanted to do it. And that's been consistent whatever I throw at Anthony he's willing to take it on and you know he might not have done it before but he's willing to try and he does exceptional work in that way how important is it to just have somebody when you're young believe in you yeah I mean there's not many more meaningful things that someone could do for you than that especially at this time like I said I mean I'm 22 I don't I have a plan of what I'm going to do, but who knows what that plan looks like and, you know, where I'm going to go or what exact steps and all that stuff. And you're you're not only dealing with, like, class and work and you're dealing with life itself, you know, relationships outside of exercise science or Ohio State. And there's a lot of stuff going on you're trying to figure out, and it can all kind of get jumbled together and, you know, anxieties and stuff can creep in. and. But at the end of the day, I knew that, you know, when you have pretty important people and successful people and good people that believe in you, you know, that kind of can help calm, calm those things. And that's been really meaningful for me, just knowing that, you know, if something, you know, whether it's professionally or in my personal mm -hmm. life isn't going my way, I, I know that there are, you know, people like uh, Carmen and you know, other people in my life that are believe in me and things I can do. And that's, I mean, pretty much all you need. See what I mean? Mentorship is priceless, and sometimes to more than the mentee. Consider Carmen's research. It's all about people making their lives better. Her mentees have gone on to work with professional basketball players, children in New York City's social work programs, even the health food industry. And now, Carmen and Anthony are spreading word about this past study, that those in a highly vulnerable population can live healthier lives in a more independent way. And if that's not priceless, what is? So next time you see a bright-eyed person eager to go down a path you know all too well, maybe consider taking them under your wing. Who knows, maybe it could change their life and the lives of others. Now at Ohio State is produced by the Ohio State University Office of Marketing and Communications. For more information, visit us at go.osu.edu slash now. I'm your host, Amanda DeJong. Thanks for listening.